Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, The Family of God. This week, we're studying the end of James chapter 1 and considering what it means to be an authentic Christian. As we study this passage of Scripture, we realize that authentic Christianity requires receiving the Word and then living the Word out in the world. We pray that you are challenged and encouraged as you join with us this week. What will make Christianity more appealing? What will make Christianity more appealing? That is a question that uh, reverberates through the walls of many churches and likely in the minds of many Christians. What can we do in an ever-changing age to make Christianity more appealing to a lost and a dying world? Now look, Christians and churches, when you look around the landscape of church today, there you can see there's an attempt to answer this question in all sorts of different manners and all sorts of different uh, fashions. Uh, someone might say that in order to make Christianity more appealing, we need to have better performers on the stage, right? If we can just get some really talented mu- musicians, some really talented singers, um, a really gifted speaker, then it will make Christianity more appealing. Others say if we can just put a coffee bar in the lobby, it'll make Christianity more appealing. Right? If we can get lights and smoke machines and all of these different things, then it will make Christianity more appealing. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that any of those things are right or wrong. There are good, healthy churches that do those things, and there are good, healthy churches that don't do those things, and there are unhealthy churches that do those things. Others would say that the best thing we can do to make Christianity more authentic is just go, let's, let's just search the, the, the annuals of church history and let's just do exactly what they did. Whether uh, that they as people who were here uh, 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 500 years ago, um, the, the key to making Christianity uh, more appealing would be to, uh, to, to lay hold of some of these strong traditions, right? Others would suggest that big events, right? Let's, let's see how many big events we can throw to draw the crowd in and to make Christianity look more fun and more appealing. But even as we ask that question this morning, even as you hear me say that, there's something a little unsettling about even asking the question, what could make Christianity more appealing, isn't there? There's something that just doesn't seem quite right about that thought. Maybe Maybe we even wonder, is it sinful to try to make Christianity more appealing? Is it, is it sinful to even be thinking in these terms? You know, I think the answer to this question, which seems to be this huge, pervasive question, is really quite simple, but it's one that is too often misunderstood in old churches and new churches and churches that have been around for a little while and churches that have been around for a long while and churches that are in the inner city and churches that are in the country. I think there has been this this broad misunderstanding. And so here's what I would say. Making Christianity more appealing is only sinful when we misunderstand the appeal of Christianity. Let me say that again. Making Christianity more appealing is only sinful when we misunderstand the appeal of Christianity. So what is the appeal of Christianity? Here's the big answer. The appeal of Christianity is Christ. That's it. 
That is the appeal of Christianity. Christ is our appeal. And so it doesn't really matter if you have coffee in the lobby or not. The appeal isn't the coffee. The appeal is Christ. And if you think that the appeal is the coffee, then when the coffee gets cold, the church is going to get cold with it. If you think the appeal is performers, then when the performers step down or when, uh, when, when the performers leave, then so will the people. Right? The appeal of Christianity is Christ. But we've got this convoluted idea that the appeal of Christianity is one of two things. Man's traditions or man's innovations, and it's neither. It's neither. Listen, some of man's traditions have been really helpful in the past at making Christ the center of Christianity. But over the course of time, maybe the tradition itself became more important to us than the one that the tradition was supposed to point to. There are some new things that churches are doing that they haven't done before that's really helpful in pointing out to people that Christ is the appeal of Christianity. But as soon as the church starts thinking that the new things are the appeal, then the church begins to plateau and die, just like the uh, church that thought the tradition was the appeal begins to plateau and die. And so it's not man's traditions, it's not man's innovations, it is Christ. And so that brings us to the conclusion that, that the only way, the only way we make Christianity more appealing to a lost and a dying world. And I'll come back to this, but can I just say this up front? When I look around the landscape of American churches, we're losing the battle. And so it, it's, been, it's been a tough week for the Snyder family this week, right? We had all kinds of things going on in our house, different fluids and sounds and all sorts of stuff coming from our children. It's been rough. And it's been rough for me this week because then now God's brought me to this passage in James that we're going to be studying this morning. Good news, we're not studying the whole book. Um, but, man, it's just hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I realize that, yeah, I look around the landscape and it looks like the church isn't doing very well in our country for the most part in many places. But then James reminds me that it's my problem. James reminds me that I have responsibility in how the church is doing. So this is tough. But the way that we make Christianity more appealing is by being authentic Christ followers. That's it. All this other stuff I'm talking about, it doesn't matter. Some of you were squirming in your seats when I started talking about coffee in the lobby. We don't have room for coffee in the lobby, so just take a deep breath. The way we make Christianity more appealing is by being authentic Christ followers. And showing the world the Christ that we serve by who we are, what we do, and what we say. I want you to know that Mission Insight is a company that does demographic studies for churches. Our state convention partners with them. A Mission, in, a Mission Insight report for our church, a five-mile radius from our church, which includes Weaverville and Mars Hill, includes about 23,000 people within a five-mile radius of where I stand right now. The top three reasons, of the top three reasons for, for why someone in this area who is unchurched does not go to church, you know what number two is? A lack of trust in the church. A lack of trust in clergy, a lack of trust in Christians, a lack of trust in the church as a whole. Now just let that sink in for a second. 
This isn't, this isn't people in downtown Asheville. This isn't people in inner city Charlotte. This is people in the mountains of western North Carolina within five miles of right here. The number two reason why they don't attend church is because they don't trust it. That's an us problem. Church, that's an us problem. We like to look at the world and say the reason we're losing is because look at how bad the world is. I've said this before. The, the world has been sinful for the last 2,000 years. Terribly sinful for the last 2,000 years. There have been emperors and rulers that have sought to destroy the church, yet the church has continued to flourish and the church has continued to grow. And so if our generation loses the battle, the reason we lose the battle isn't because the world is any more sinful than it was before. It's because it's an us problem. If they don't trust us, then we have an authenticity problem. We have an issue reflecting who Christ is. We have an issue communicating the real appeal of Christianity. And so we desperately need to reclaim authentic Christianity in our churches. Now you may be wondering at this point, what does this really have to do with our Family of God series where we're looking at growing our families the way that God grows His? The answer is actually in James chapter 1, verse 21 through 27. We're going to be considering this this morning. As I said a moment ago, everybody can be relieved. We're not studying the whole book of James we did that last week with Esther, and so this week I thought we would bite off a smaller chunk, but I promise you this is all I could handle this week. So, uh, so hold on with me. If nothing else, um, you guys can just watch as I preach this message to myself this morning. But, you know, James is this really practical guy. A lot of people, there's probably a lot of people in this room, James is your favorite book for that reason. Uh, he's super practical. Like, here, here's what you ought to do, now go do it. And that is certainly the case for this passage of Scripture this morning, but really the whole book of James is, is providing us some form of clarity about, uh, about what authentic Christianity ought to be, what it ought to look like. Now, as we read this, you're going to see how it connects to the family of God because you're going to see that James is connecting authentic Christianity with our ministry to the orphan. Right Now, let me go ahead and preface this now. I'll mention it again. Uh, James, James sets forth uh, ministry to the orphan and the widow. Because of the nature of our series, I'll focus more on the orphan when we get there, but don't think that one is more important than the other. Okay? James doesn't distinguish between the two as far as importance goes. They're both important, and we'll see that sort of as, as a highlight of, of compassion ministry. We'll, we'll get there, but I want to go ahead and let you know that just because we're focusing on uh, the orphan a portion of this this morning doesn't mean that care for the widow is less important or less significant. But really what is happening here in this passage, this is what I want you to see this morning, is it's a call to evaluate our faith. right? It's a call to look into the mirror as James talks about in this passage. Really evaluate how authentic our faith really is. Really evaluate how authentic of a Christ follower we are. Because for everything that's out there about church health, about church revitalization, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to be dramatic here. I just think it's the reality. If we don't respond to the call to look at ourselves in the mirror, evaluate our authenticity and surrender our lives all over again to be an authentic Christ follower, the church has little hope. 
It just does. And it's not because Christ is less powerful. It's just because Christ has less followers. Right? This is what the church is for, to reflect Christ. And so if we're not authentically, if we're not authentically reflecting Christ, you know what Scripture says? In so many words, we'll close the door and we'll write Ichabod across the top. This is where our life comes from. Nothing else. This is it. And so it is incumbent upon us to evaluate our faith this morning and to commit our lives to becoming authentic Christ followers. Read with me James chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Excuse me. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh in the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. We believe that it carries with it all authority. Most of all this morning, God, as we take this Word, as we open it, as we read it, as we consider it, as we look into it as a mirror, Lord, we recognize that this Word has all authority over our lives. And so, Lord, right now in this moment, may we embrace this Word with a humility that is unmatched. Lord, may our hearts... May our minds be laid open before you. May the light of your Son Jesus enter into the dark places of our life. And may we be transformed. May you raise up on this day authentic Christ followers to go into a world that is broken, that is suffering that is hurting. The news we have, Lord, is truly good news. It's that gospel news. But may we be authentic in our walk that people might not only hear, but they might see your son Jesus. We ask all of this in his precious and holy name. Amen. Now, of course, we understand where this passage is going. Uh, one thing authentic Christians can do is care for orphans. And, and we'll get there. Like I say, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to care uh, for, for widows. We'll, I'll talk about that more. But now, I also want to preface this by saying this doesn't mean that you can't be an authentic Christian if you don't adopt a child. Okay, that's, that's, not, that's not the point of where we're going. The point of the text here is to show us, really, I think, two things. Two things that are required for being an authentic Christian. Now, hopefully, at this point, you're ready to say, okay, I, I'm not sure I'm an authentic Christian. I'm ready to find out, but I need to know 
What does it really mean? What does it really look like to be an authentic Christian? Uh, be an authentic Christian. I believe authentic Christianity requires us to do two things. I believe it requires us to receive the Word and then to live the Word out in the world. Now, I think that statement is relatively simple, that we should receive the Word and then live that Word out in the world. But the depths of our understanding and the practicality of how that should look in our lives is something I think we really need to drill down on. Now, orphan and widow care are just one way of the living out, uh, the one way that the living out happens. And like I say, we're going to get there shortly. But before we can really even concern ourselves with the living, then we must, we, we must make sure that we're doing the receiving. That's the way James builds out this passage. You receive the Word, and then you live the Word that you have received. So verses 21 through 25, he's really talking about receiving the Word. If we're going to be an authentic Christian, it requires us to receive the Word. And so what does he really reveal about what it means to receive the Word? What does it mean to receive the Word? Does it just mean that you show up on a regular basis so that I can deliver the Word to you? Does it mean that you just read the Bible uh, on a regular basis, even preferably a daily basis, and you receive the Word? Well, yeah, all of those things are going to be required to receive the Word, but is that really the depth of understanding of, of how we get the most out of it? Because it doesn't matter how good or how bad of a preacher I am, it's very possible for you to come every week and not get anything out of it. And frankly, if you don't get anything out of it, this is like this is the ultimate scapegoat here. It's not a me problem, it's a you problem. Because I promise you, God has worked in spite of me plenty of times. Right? It's amazing. Others have said this through church history, but it's amazing that God chose the foolishness of preaching to communicate His Word. Someone as foolish as this guy to communicate his word. And so if you're not getting anything out of it, it's probably, it could be the preacher's fault. Now listen, I'm not letting all preachers at all times off the hooks here. I, I, there's some bad ones. I've been a bad one before. But if this is a consistent issue, it's probably not a preacher problem, it's probably a, a you problem. And so what does it really mean to receive the word? Notice, notice where verse 21 begins. Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Here's what James is saying. Put aside all wickedness. This is where it starts. To put aside all wickedness. Now how do we do this? What James is really talking about here is repentance. Now some translations will say rid yourselves. right? And, and the idea here, the imagery here is like putting away dirty clothes. Here are these filthy rags. Here are these dirty clothes. I'm going, to, I'm going to put them away. I'm going to put them to the side. This is, this is the idea here. And this, this is even just preparing ourselves to receive the Word, right? You're not receiving the Word with dirty clothes. You're not going to be able to receive the Word well in your filth. And so it must begin with repentance. We prepare to receive the Word of God by putting away sin. And this is often overlooked, I fear. I'll be honest with you, there's times I overlook this. It is foolishness to even open God's Word before we have spent time in repentance. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens when we, when we just, you know, you wake up in the morning, if that's when you do your Bible study and you just open it up and you read it. I'm not saying there's not ever anything good that can't come from that. But when we overlook this idea of repentance, here's what happens. 
when we haven't done away with the filthiness, when there's still sin inside of us, what's going to happen is you're going to take God's Word and you're going to read it, but you're going to read it through the lens of your own sin. And so then the temptation is going to be to, worst case scenario, justify your sin because you've not repented of it. Best case scenario, see something that confronts your sin and just say, oh yeah, well, that's, put that on the to-do list. We'll do that later. That's an issue. It's an issue. We, we, when we open God's Word, when we sit under the preaching of God's Word, it must be in the spirit of repentance. One writer said, True repentance is a continued spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. My sin is ever before me. This is the way we read God's Word. This is the way we should receive God's Word with our sin ever before us. Before we ever even read the first word, say, Lord, here I am. Here is my filthiness. Here, here, is, here is all of my foolishness. Here is all of my sin. Here it is, Lord. Now let me look into your word as a mirror. Raise your hand if you looked into a mirror today. If you didn't raise your hand, maybe, maybe try that sometime. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of looking into a mirror? To, to, fi to figure out where the faults are, right? So that we can look presentable. Right? We don't want to go out in public looking filthy. We don't want to go out in public looking put together unless you're a man going to Lowe's and then you don't care. Right? You, you look into the mirror to find the faults. It's really good to have some idea of the faults when you look into the mirror. Right? And this is, this is what we're talking about with God's Word. Man, let's be honest about our faults. Let's get our faults out there and then let's read God's Word. And God, you show me. You show me that I'm way worse than I ever imagined I could be. Because isn't that kind of what... I mean, well, I'm speaking for myself here. Like when I look into the mirror, I'm like, whoa... I'm way uglier than I ever thought I could be, right? But really, I mean, all joking aside, this is the way it ought to be when we look into God's Word. I am way filthier than I ever thought I could be, but Christ is way more beautiful, way more gracious, way more loving than I ever imagined He could possibly be. And so, Lord, take all of this filth and make me more like Jesus. This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. So notice, this is where we must begin. We don't attune our ear to God's Word through striving to be morally good, accomplishing, accomplishing great things. We receive God's Word when we begin with repentance. Again, I think, I think clarity is important because you can know God's Word and not really receive it. I want you to see this distinction because it's a distinction I think James is trying to make very clear. The, those who open the Bible and who read it with a repentant heart, will experience God's Word in a whole new and fresh way. But those who open God's Word and read it without a repentant heart may be able to learn it academically, but they'll never experience it spiritually. There is a very real possibility that there are a number of people in this room that have an incredible academic understanding of this Word. You know it. You know what it says. You know the history. 
You know, you know which books go in which testament. <laughs> you can sing the song. You can recite some. Uh, you can recite some of the important truths from different Sunday school lessons or sermons that you've heard over the year. But it's all academic because you've never really experienced it spiritually. And listen, I get it from someone that lives in the academic world and the spiritual world. I get it. Right? I can set through classes, I can write papers, I can, I can do research projects, I can do whatever, and it can, it can all be true, it can all be accurate about this word, but it can all be academic. And it's the same for you. You can read a quarterly, you can set through a small group study, you can set through a sermon, and you can learn all kinds of really neat facts about the word. But you've not really received it until you experience it spiritually. Thomas Watson once said, Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. And so how many of us possess a great deal of knowledge, but have done very little in way of repentance? Repentance paves the way for what James says next in verse 21. How do we receive this word? He says, with meekness receive the engrafted word. Or, or you might say with humility the implanted word, right? Meekness, humility. It's this word that has been implanted. Listen, the secret to being a good student of Scripture is humility. And the best way to be humble when you open God's word is to start with repentance. Because if you repent and you're not humble after, then you've not really repented. And so repentance sets the stage. It, it, it draws us to humility. So how do you hear God's Word? Do you hear it with a grudge? Do you hear it with pride? Do you hear it with hesitancy, with hostility? Or do you hear it with a humility and a hunger, with your sin ever before you and saying, God, I desperately need this today. So what does the repentance-fueled, humble reception of God's Word do? Look at the end of verse 21. Which is able to save your souls. This Word is the power unto salvation. This is it. All the other stuff I mentioned at the beginning, it's not that. This Word. This Word is where salvation begins and ends. It is through the proclaiming of this Word that the Spirit draws men and women unto Himself. And so here and nowhere else is salvation. This is it. If you've not experienced this, you've not experienced salvation. I don't care how many aisles you've walked. I don't care how many prayers you've, excuse me, you've repeated after someone. If, this, if what James is talking about in these few verses is not a reflection of your life, you've got an issue. One of two issues. Either you've not experienced the power of salvation or you have and now you find yourself as a lukewarm Christian. We know what Revelation says about lukewarm Christians. They're spit out. 
It's serious business. Right? Now understand, when James is talking about being saved, let's, let's, let's make sure we understand what this means. It's being used in a comprehensive sense. By comprehensive sense of salvation, what we're talking about is that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Okay, that's what James is saying. This word is, is the power unto salvation. This word is where we find salvation. By salvation, we mean that we are saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Now, there's, there's three theological words that we use uh, to, to sort of describe this, right? Justification, that, that is that moment when you surrender your life to Christ. When you say, Lord, I am a filthy, dirty sinner, and my only hope is in your son Jesus, so save me. At that moment, you're justified. There's nothing that can change that. We are saved. But then there's also this process of sanctification. This is Christian maturity. This is growing in the Word. Right? And so that is, we, we are saved. We are being saved. Right? He is continuing to make us more like His Son Jesus. And then there is this word glorification. That is that we will be saved. That is that one day Christ will return. He will establish His kingdom. And we will be made like Him. We will be glorified. So we are justified, we are sanctified, and then we are glorified. This is the salvation that James is talking about. But then I want you to look here at the end of verse 22. Not here's only deceiving your own selves. Not here's only deceiving your own selves. Now this is sort of uh, this is this is sort of already come into play here as we've talked about repentance because what we're really talking about is preparing ourselves to hear the word being serious about hearing the Word. I want to share with you a quote that I think ties all of this together. Salvation, hearing the Word, repentance, understanding all this. Charles Spurgeon once said, Another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of and his conversion is fiction. If you have not heard the word that has led to doing the word, I agree with Spurgeon, your repentance needs to be repented of. Because this is authentic conversion. If, 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 this is setting the stage. right? I mean, James is dropping this bomb and it's like, okay. If I'm not actually doing it, then I'm not saved. So what does it mean to do it? He's going to show us here in just a second. This is serious business. This is, this is reflection business. Listen, you, most of you know by now that I'm a revitalization guy. It's, it's my heart. It's my, I feel like it's really my call uh, in, in ministry is to see legacy churches, churches that have been around for a while that have plateaued or started declining, to see new life brought to them. Because I believe that with every church that has been started, regardless of where it was five years ago or 50 years ago or 150 years ago or like my church, home church over 200 years ago, that when that church was planted, God staked a claim for His glory in that community and He intends for it to continue on. But here's the thing. Every situation that I've seen, whether it's been pastoring, whether it's been consulting with leadership or consulting with churches, whether it's been sitting in, in roundtable discussions on this issue, every situation I've seen or know of is because somewhere along the way, the church got away from the book. You've probably heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it several times. We have a book for a reason. 
so we can do what's in it. And somewhere along the way, if a church is plateaued, if a church is dying, it's because they got away from the book. If you went from a thousand members to a hundred members, it's not because your musicians got worse or your preaching got worse. Those could be part of the symptoms, but the real problem is somewhere along the way you got away from the book. You either started worrying about man's innovations too much or man's traditions too much, and you got away from the book. Because here's the thing. I don't know a church that's about the business of God's Word, which we talk about a lot. I don't know a church that uses the book that's dying. It's not possible. Life is in this Word. Salvation is in this Word. If we're a people of the book as Baptists, we pride ourselves as being people of the book. But if we are truly people of the book, the future is bright. There's hope. We'll be authentic Christians. But, but think about this. If we have an issue with our churches getting away from the book, how much more of a problem is it in the lives of our individual church members? Because the only way the church gets away from the book is if the members get away from the book. The church is what the members do. And so if you're away from the book in your home, if you're away from the book in your personal life, listen, it's really important for the pastor, it's really important for church leaders, right? Whether it's administrative staff or deacons or Sunday school teachers or small group leaders, but it's important for everyone. Because even if you have a pastor that gets away from the book, if you're in the book, you'll know. And you'll be able to do something about it. If you have a deacon that gets away from the book, if you're in the book, you'll know. You'll be able to do exactly what God's Word says to do. Go to them. Address it with them. If that doesn't work, get two or three more. Go to them again. If that still doesn't work, then it's time for church discipline. Right? You want to restore them back to the book. This is, this is, it's really not complicated. Receive the Word and do the Word. When we don't, we plateau, we die. When we don't, we get complacent. The goal is not to go back where we once were. The goal is not to become the church down the road. The goal is to do what the book says. And there's contextualization in this? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't get, we, we, planted this church, we helped plant this church in Scotland. You can't, we can't go build a building like this, do services like this, and be effective in Scotland because it's a huge turnoff because of distrust in the church. So it's got to look different. In fact, sometimes it has to be in coffee shops. Sometimes it needs to be in schools. So there's contextualization, but it doesn't matter. As long as you're, as long as you're about the business of the book, you're going to be all right. You're going to reach people. You're going to be authentic Christians. Right? This is exactly why. This is exactly why James uses the illustration of, mirror, of the mirror. The point is, we cannot consider the Word of God to be received until it's been acted on. That's it. Man, you can't say that you have received God's Word until you have acted on God's Word. This is not the way it works. Man, if you've really received it, you're going you're to act on it. What was, the, what was the quote just saying? You're going to look different. You're going to live different. You're going to do differently. So Scripture shows us how we need to repent. It doesn't just show us, it doesn't just show us, this is the beauty of Scripture, how we need to repent. It does that, but then it holds out the promise of grace. Here's the problem. 
And here's the grace to be transformed from the cup. So receive the Word, but then we come to verses 26 and 27. Receiving the Word means we repent, we hear what it says, and we do what it commands. So that doing of the Word, it really segues into these last two verses here. James drills down on this practical application. And these two verses really uncover the truth of living the Word. Let me begin by saying this. Living the Word is what impacts someone else. That's it. When you live the Word, that is what impacts someone else. Coming back to this idea of church revitalization, one of the questions that we always ask a lot, um, some of you might have heard me ask it even around here. Important question. If when I was done preaching today, we called ourselves into conference and we decided just to close the doors. Close the doors of Locust Grove. Pack up shop. This is it. We, we, hey, we had a good run. We give it a shot, but it's just not working. So we close the doors, and today at 12 noon, Locust Grove Baptist Church ceased to exist. Here's the question. Would the community around us even notice? You would notice, because next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, you wouldn't have anywhere to go. But I'm not talking about if you would notice. I'm talking about the orphan and the widow down the street. I'm talking about the drug addict in town. Would they notice? Would anyone notice besides driving by and saying, hmm, I think there used to be a church there. If we ceased to exist today, would anyone notice? If the answer is no, and if it's I don't know, then that means the answer is probably no, by the way. If the answer is no, then we have an issue living the Word. Because living the Word is what impacts someone else. But let's dive into what James says here. Verse 26. This begins with bridling or taming the tongue. You know, the improper use of the tongue actually is, is pretty pervasive in, in James's letter. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he talks about the dangers of self-justifying speech. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he talks about shaming speech. Verses 16 and 18 of chapter 2, he talks about superficial speech. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, he talks about scorching speech. In verse 9 of chapter 3, it's shifting speech. And then in chapter 4, he mentions it two more times with slander speech in verse 11 and self-reliant speech in verse 13. James knows that the tongue is an issue for Christians. And just as I said, for a lot of churches that are, that are struggling, a lot of churches that are plateaued or dying, they've got away from the book. Many of them have turned to the tongue. We joke about it a lot. There's a lot of jokes that can be told about backbiting, about gossiping in the church. I've been guilty of telling some of those jokes. Maybe you have too, but this is no joking matter. The issue of gossip, the issue of backbiting, the issue of destructive speech is one that is real in the local church. And this is one of those issues where we read God's Word without our sinful tongue ever before us and we dismiss it. And we say it's okay. We, we say that it's, that it's all right. And here's what ends up happening. 
I'm going to use autumn as an illustration here because it's not safe for me, but it's safe for you all. If you, if, if you hear autumn gossiping, here, here's the response that most church members give to another church member who's gossiping. Autumn. That's just autumn. You know how she is. Always got something to say about somebody. We just brush it off. Like, hey, well, that's just, that's just autumn. We're just going to accept her for who she is. I don't believe that's who she is. I believe she, believe she controls the tongue pretty well, but maybe I'm biased. And our response is just acceptance. We just accept a sinful tongue. We just sweep it under the rug. The church I pastored before I came here had this very problem. A church with a history of church splits, all of them, Satan used the weapon of someone's tongue. And so you know what we did to bridle the tongue? We started holding people accountable. And instead of saying, oh, it's just Autumn saying, Autumn, no. That's gossip and we don't need to engage in that. And if it was really bad, there would be issues where they would come to me and say, hey, here's an issue of gossip. I need you to go with me to talk to this person. And, we, and, and that's what we did. And you know what God did through that? He tamed the tongues of that church. A few months after I had been here, one of the people who was worse for it throughout the history, after I was gone, made another attempt to start, start sowing deceit with the tongue. But you know what? God had changed the culture of the church. And so whether I was there or another pastor was there, the church held that person accountable and they backed down and repented. Because they know how dangerous the tongue is. And we can all be guilty of this. Some certainly more than others. But don't you realize, it's not just dangerous to the church, it's dangerous to your own spiritual being. Scripture tells us that the tongue is the outflow of the heart. And so if all you have is something negative to say about someone else, what does that say about your own heart? If all you have to do is beat someone else down, what does that say about your own heart? Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It concerns me how willing we are to overlook dangerous speech in our Christian circles. I mean, it's a serious matter. James says this means that your religion, listen to this, your religion, the thing that you are likely priding yourself on right now, means nothing if you've got a loose tongue. It's fake. Let me put it in the most contemporary terms I can. James says, you're a frog. Man, that hurts. That hurts. We need to establish accountability in the church when it comes to the tongue. Don't engage, but exhort, rebuke, teach, correct, love, disciple. Do what the Word says to do. Now verse 27, I've got to move on here. Verse 27. I actually want to circle back to this, but James is really talking about exercising compassion. He tells us that an unbridled tongue is a sign that you're not living the Word, but, but then he says, well, here are some signs that you are living the Word. Begins with, with what we might summarize here is compassion ministry. Again, he specifically mentions orphans and widows. I'm going to focus on orphans as we close this morning doesn't mean that the widows aren't important. But I want to come back to that because I want you to see the end of verse 27. 
So we jump to the end of verse 27. We see that those who are living the word pursue a clean life. It's connected right back to what he's saying about the tongue. But let me first say this. This is going to seem elementary to you, but it's possible that you know this academically, but you've never experienced this spiritually. It's only possible to pursue a clean life if you have been made clean by the spotless Lamb of God. If you have been made clean by Jesus, it's possible to pursue a clean life. If you have not been made clean by the blood of Jesus, you can hear everything I say academically. And you can try and you might do better for a day or a week or a month, but it will not last. You will go back to your old habits. Maybe it's the tongue. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's complacency. Maybe it is some sort of filthiness, some sort of sin that you just haven't been able that you just haven't been able to kick. You just keep falling into the same thing time and time and time again. You cannot successfully pursue a clean life unless you've been made clean by the spotless Lamb of God. Then and only then can you pursue a clean life. And that means, that means when we've been made clean by the spotless Lamb of God, when we've been made clean by Jesus, it means that we're free from the contaminating effects of this world. We're free from the issues of, uh, of, of immorality. We're free from the issues of materialism. But I also want you to understand this, church, because this is another area where we get drastically off track. It does not mean that you're isolated from people. Pursuing a clean life, hear me say this, does not mean that you're isolated from people. It just means that you're separated from sin. And there's too many people that think their salvation is coming from their isolation from people while they refuse to deal with their sin. If I can just go to church, if I can just come up with this checklist of things that I shouldn't do, and when I go to bed at night, as long as I don't do them, then I'm probably saved. And the best way for me to do that is to totally isolate from people. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not isolation from people, it is separation from sin. That's why all of this, that's why James starts all of this with repentance. He actually explains this further. We don't have time, I was going to, but you don't have time to go there this morning. So if you if you later, if you want to look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, James goes into a little bit more detail there. And, and, And then if you read that, and you can even see it here, but you really see it through James's, through the entire book of James, something very important that James addresses. And the way he addresses it. James almost always, and I think we see this a lot in Scripture actually, almost always addresses purity and poverty together. Purity and poverty together. Now typically, typically when we think about like conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity, and I know those are two convoluted terms now, but typically when we think about like this conservative Christianity, we think about purity. Like that's the first thing that comes to mind. People who are, who are pure. But a lot of times you see social separation. Cut off from the world. They don't understand the world around them. They don't even know who their neighbors are. And then when you think about this liberal Christianity, again, I know there's, these are convoluted terms, but you, you think more about the poor. You think about people that are more interested in social injustices than they are in this, in this, um, in this purity. Right? They're, they're, they're more concerned with being social warriors than they are in dealing with their own sin. 
And so we've sort of separated them. We've, we've put them into categories. But here's the thing. James puts them together. The reason James puts them together is because actually if you look at Jesus' teaching, Jesus puts them together. It's both and. So there are many churches that are all about holiness. All about holiness. They'll talk about sin, accountability groups, doing all of these things to, to be pure, to get right. But they've never lifted a finger for the poor. And that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And then there are these, this other camp that we might consider liberal Christians who have rejected a biblical understanding of holiness. They've rejected a biblical understanding of marriage, of sin, etc., etc. But, but they're all about social justice. That's also unacceptable. Both are unacceptable. We need to be a people who pursue holiness, not legalism, don't get them confused, pursue holiness and pursue social justice as faithful Christians. This means that we must repent of two sins. We have to repent of the sin of omission, right? That's for the conservative types who have been socially isolated, who have done nothing for the community around them, who would not be missed if they ceased to exist. That's the sin of omission, not doing it. It needs to be repented of. But we also need to repent of the sins of commission, where we've compromised the truth of God's Word, where we've softened our stance on important biblical issues. If we've been guilty of that, we need to repent of that. And so it's this two-fold repentance. But this brings us back to the idea of compassion ministry as we live the Word. Notice there, James intentionally, I think, refers to God as Father. It's a reminder that He is the Father of the fatherless. He is a compassionate Father, and, and, and our job is to reflect Him. Right? God visited His people when they were childless. He visited them when they were breadless. He visited them when they were crushed under Egyptian oppression. Right? Sarah was barren. God visited her in Genesis 21. Ruth was hungry. God visited them when they had no bread. Ruth 1.6. And then we're even reminded in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7, verse 16, that all throughout the Old Testament, God was consistent to visit His people because He is a father to the fatherless. And so visiting orphans and widows means, that, that it means care and involvement. Again, they're both equally important, but I just want to close with this. Three reasons we, sh we should be involved in this type of ministry, in compassion ministry. I'm focusing now specifically on ministry to orphans as we think about this series, The Family of God. Three reasons that we should do this. Number one is in order for us to obey the Word. There's an avalanche of text in Scripture about the orphan, about God's concern for the orphan. God has a plan to care for orphans. And that plan is that His people would act justly and merciful towards orphans. Tim Keller once said, Just as Israel was to be a community of justice, so the church is to reflect the same concerns for the poor. There's a story in church history. Aristides was a philosopher who ended up getting saved and he became this great apologist in the second century for the church. He was writing to Emperor Hatteran in defense of Christians. The emperor wanted to build a city on top of where the temple used to be. Had no concern for Christianity, had no concern for their God, was perfectly content to wipe it totally out. Aristides writes this defense, and here's what he said. Here's what he said about the church in the second century. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. 
And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. Can I summarize what Aristotle is saying to the emperor? If you kill the church, you're going to miss the church. Our community needs the church. He says they love one another. They care for one another. They minister to the widows. They minister to the orphans. All of the things that's going to cost you money and time that you can't do, the church is doing. I'm not sure that he could, but if he was to write this defense today, he should be able to say the same thing. To any political leader, to any community leader, we should be able to say, no, you don't want, you don't want that church to die. Because in that church, not only do they love one another, but they don't turn away from the widows. And they deliver the orphan from those who abuse them. We should do it to obey God's Word. Number two, because we should do it because God has visited us in our affliction. John 14, 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Galatians chapter 4 Paul's writing verses 4 through 7 just sort of summarize it this way. He's, he's telling the church in Galatia, God didn't adopt us because of our attractive qualities. He didn't adopt us because of our merits, but because of His amazing mercy. Ephesians 1, 5, we learn that we have been adopted if we are in Christ. Ephesians 5, 1, Paul, Paul sort of wraps it up by saying that since we have been adopted, we should imitate God as His beloved children. And so for the church, we should reflect the adopting love of God to a world in need. Now again, certainly not everyone is called to adopt. Not every child is available for adoption. But every believer is called to imitate God. And that's really what this passage is about. How well have you done imitating God? James calls us to reflect on the nature of our redeeming God by aiding orphans in their affliction. And the affliction exists. Number three, I close with this. We should engage in these types of ministries as an act of worship to Jesus. Matthew 25, Jesus speaking to children, says, Whatever you've done unto them, you've done it unto me. The orphan has a face, and that face is a Galilean carpenter. Listen, we won't solve the orphan crisis. One church can't solve the orphan crisis, but... Everything we can do matters when it's done in the name of Jesus. And so we have everything we need to invest in these types of ministries. And there's many ways to do it. If you came last week to Alongside Families, you know there's many ways to do it. We have the greatest motivation for doing it. Uh, this incredible Savior who demonstrated care for the least of these. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And that's good news for everyone in this room because if you're sitting in this room and you're still an orphan, you're not a child of the Father, then right now Jesus says, I come to you in your distress. I come to you in your affliction. But when I come to you, I intend to change you. I intend to transform you into my image. And so if you have not been transformed into His image, then you have not really come to Him. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of our adoption. When He has adopted us, He has given us His Holy Spirit. And it's really His Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to be authentic Christ followers. And so this is it. How do we make the church more appealing? We become authentic Christ followers. 
How are we doing? If you will, please stand with me as musicians come. I know it's, I know it's been a little bit this morning, but as they prepare to play, I, I just, just want to encourage you, just bow your heads with me for just a moment because I told you this, this week's been a tough week. It's, hopefully now you know, I mean, this passage is it's, it's to the point. It cuts deep. And I just, I, just, I just think, I think the call to action here is just so obvious in two senses. One, if, if, you're not, if you're not sure of your salvation, like I said just a second ago, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you step forward and you say, you know what, Lord? I'm an orphan. I've not put aside my filthy rags, but today, Lord, I do it. I want to be made clean by the spotless Lamb of God. I want to be made clean by your Son. So that's part of it. That's the start of it. But then I think there's this call to the church as a whole, the Christians as a whole. How authentic are we? How authentic have you been? Has your tongue been a reflection of your authenticity? Has your actions been a reflection of your authenticity? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. As they play, as I pray, even as we sing in just a moment, if either one of those things are the case for you, I do want to invite you to come this morning because I think there's something significant about stepping out and saying, you know what, Lord, I'm not where I should be, but I have looked into the mirror of your word. And this morning, I want to recommit myself to becoming an authentic Christian. If that's you, I, I invite you to come. It's not that there's anything special about this altar. It's not that God can't, can't deal with your heart any place at any time. But there's something significant about saying, you know what, Lord, here I am. We looked at Ruth last week. Here I am, send me. God cannot send us anywhere until we are authentic. Until we are authentic followers. as I pray if you are concerned about whether or not you have actually ever become a follower of Christ or whether it's just all academic for you then talk to somebody let's figure it out and let's leave this place as a church that's united not around not around man's traditions or innovations but as a church that's united around Christ and as authentic followers of Christ as I pray as we sing I invite you to surrender and just allow the Lord to deal with your heart. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified anytime we post a new episode. We pray that you have been encouraged and challenged by what you have heard in today's episode, and we look forward to joining with you again next week.